haven't done this in a while, so bear with me. <laughs> um, if you have been in here, most of you, when I've taught, we've been going through church history, and it's been so long that I don't think any of us, myself included, remember where I left off. <laughs> so I thought I would uh, follow up on what Bob talked about last week with the canon of Scripture and look at the historical perspective of what the church uh, went through in uh, recognizing the canon of the Scripture. Um, so kind of review a little bit of what Bob talked about, and then we'll get into it. Um, Direct quote from Baba Day last week. <laughs> the canon of scripture is the list of all the books and letters that are deemed to be inspired by God and therefore belong in the Bible. Uh, and remember that canon was a Greek word meaning standard or rule. It was These are the books. Um, one of the most important features of the canon of scripture is that it is determined by God. God spoke the words. God knows which books, which letters belong in the canon um, because he ordained it that way. It's not up to man to decide which books are inspired. Uh, Our role as the church was to discover and to recognize them as being inspired. So we don't decide which ones are. We recognize what God has ordained. Uh, God inspired those which he inspired. He didn't inspire any more that we don't know about or, or any less. Uh, we believe he is sovereign, um, and so he knows and always has known which books belong uh, in his word. Uh, this process of discovery was not easy, uh, and in fact it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like the church all got together at one point, sat down, and came up with the exact list we have today on the first try. Uh, we're going to see actually that it, it took a few revisions, uh, and there still are some... Um, disagreements with different branches as far as what's acceptable or not. Um, but ultimately God orchestrated that the correct outcome would be reached and was reached. Uh, this distinction between determining and discovering uh, actually plays a very large role in separating Protestants from Catholics. Uh, the Catholics claim that the Pope has the authority to determine what is the scripture Uh, which I just said, no, that's God's role. Uh, And so consequently, if that authority rests with the Pope, then that means what the Pope says has greater authority than what the Scripture says. And that's what allows the Catholics to hold tradition and things like that so high above the Word of God. Uh, This was one of Martin Luther's points of contention with the Catholics during the Reformation. He wrote about it um, actually in his... um, commentary on Galatians. He, he got into that topic with the, the Catholics. Um, so today we recognize that the canon is closed, uh, which is to say that, that there are no more changes that we're going to make to it. There are no books to be added. There are, there are no books that need to be taken off of it. And there's no new material being produced uh, that belongs in it. Uh, And so being closed or complete or or fixed has many implications. Uh, One of the implications of it being closed is that there are not currently any apostles receiving new revelation from God. Um, This is something we've talked about in the past looking at church history. Uh, We see it a lot with the charismatic movement and the idea that you can 
receive special revelation, visions, dreams, new messages from God. Um, But if the canon is closed, if God isn't giving new messages through the apostles anymore, then we know that those claims are false. Um, In fact, anybody who claims to have something new, something different, maybe a change, is going against the word of God. We find a number of warnings in the Bible about altering God's word. Uh, We'll go ahead and read a few of those. Uh, If you guys want to turn first to Deuteronomy 4, we'll read verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2, yes. Moses speaking to the people of Israel, uh, he says, uh, this is a message from God, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And then um, another one in the Old Testament, let's go to Proverbs chapter 30, 5 and 6. Chapter 30, verse 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting um, thinking about the Pharisees and all of the extra rules that they had placed on uh, the Israelite people in Jesus' time. They knew the law, they knew these two verses quite clearly, and yet they still added their own thing so much to what God's commands said. Um, And then one from the New Testament, uh, we go to Revelation chapter 22, this is one people are familiar with. Um, Commentators say specifically these verses apply to the book of Revelation, uh, but the principle is applicable to all of scripture. In chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, um, John writes, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Those are some pretty serious warnings. Uh, Those are the plagues, obviously, of Revelation wouldn't be fun to endure, and and losing your share in the tree of life in the holy city, losing salvation. Uh, God is very serious about not messing with his word. Uh, And so we also know that God uh, sovereignly oversees his word. He's made sure that the right word, the word that needs to be preserved, through the ages is what has been handed down through the church. Uh, Another implication of the canon being closed is the understanding that God has revealed everything that we need to know. We don't need special revelation. We don't need to know, for example, the exact date and time of the second coming. That's not in the scripture, and it's very clear that it's not going to be made known to us, and we don't need to know it. Uh, Nothing needs to be added, and everything in the scripture is valuable and is the word of God. There's nothing in there that we can say, well, you know, that's that's just some extra stuff that doesn't matter. Or Uh, doesn't apply to me. Or doesn't apply to me. People do that with the gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, it's not Pauline. Right. I've been reading the book of Job lately, um, and if you've read the book of Job, you know that the bulk of it is Job's three fa- friends saying things that kind of sound good, but weren't, weren't completely right. And so if you think, well, if all of that wasn't right, why is it in the Bible? Why do I need to read it? Well, it still has value. There's still stuff to be learned from it. And so it's still the word of God, just as an example of a large chunk of a book that you kind of wonder, why is it in here? Why do I need to know this? Um, Did you say that um, the friends, mis- it was an example of being misapplied? Yes, misapplied? very much so. Yeah. They, a lot of their theology was accurate, but misapplied. Yeah. Um, let's look at, um, speaking of the scripture being sufficient, uh, a couple of verses that support that. Second Peter chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And through the knowledge of him, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we know that the knowledge of him, the knowledge of Christ, comes through the scripture. So it is through the scripture that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And another verse, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. I think Bob mentioned these as well recently regarding the inspiration of scripture a couple weeks ago. But 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible is sufficient for all that we need to know for righteousness, for life, for godliness, to be completely equipped for every good work. Everything we need is in the Bible. We don't need other sources. We don't need extra revelation, we don't need secret knowledge, it's all in there. Um, So now, understanding that that is the canon, it's closed, those are the implications, let's start to look at the the historical perspective of what the church went through um, in order to recognize the canon, recognize what God had determined as his word, and so we'll begin with the Old Testament. Bob already mentioned some of this, but it's helpful for review. The Old Testament was written over a period of approximately 1,000 years. Uh, It was written in two languages. Um, All the books are either in Hebrew or Aramaic originally uh, by about 40 different writers. Uh, The last book to be written was the book of Malachi, uh, written sometime between 440 and 400 B.C., Beginning around 400 B.C., uh, following the return of the exiles uh, to Jerusalem uh, and the discovery of the scriptures by Ezra and others, uh, a group of scholars, uh, a special group of scholars in Israel was formed known as the Sophorim. Uh, and the Sophorim took up the task of making copies of the Hebrew scriptures. 
They had a great deal of respect for the scriptures as the word of God. Uh, They were very meticulous and careful to copy the word exactly as it was written uh, because they understood that it was the word of God. They didn't want to make textual errors or, you know, transcribe a word wrong. Um, And so the Sophorim began to produce more and more copies of these Old Testament scriptures, uh, which is one reason we actually have a lot of archaeological uh, evidence and and proof of the Old Testament. Uh, This group, the Sophorim, were eventually enveloped by a sect known as the Pharisees. We're all familiar with them. Uh, And the Pharisees are known for their strict devotion to keeping the law. They also valued the word of God, although they valued it too much and decided to add to it. (laughs) But they did value it, uh, as with the Sophorim. Um, Following the conquest of most of that part of the world by Alexander the Great, um, we saw what was known as the Hellenization of the world, which means the, it was sort of transformed to a Greek culture. Greek became the predominant language for most of that part of the world. Um, a lot of the architecture and science and art was influenced by the Greeks. Um, but language is the main thing uh, that we're concerned with here. And so with Greek becoming the primary language, even in Israel, more and above um, Hebrew, they began to translate the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, into Greek. Uh, this happened around the, sometime in the 3rd century BC. It was accomplished by a group of approximately 70, some records say 72, Jewish scholars. This translation is what we know as the Septuagint. Uh, You've all heard of that. Uh, If you've ever wondered where it got its name, septa is the Greek word for 70. It's a reference to the number of scholars that performed the translation. So, Septuagint. 70 scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Uh, The validity of the Septuagint is affirmed by how frequently it is quoted in the New Testament. Um, Jesus, many of the disciples, they quoted the Septuagint version of the scripture as opposed to the Hebrew version in many cases. Uh, There were some, you know, little distinctions. If you, I mean, even in our Bibles here, we've got, you know, probably four or five different English translations represented in this room alone. And if you pick any given verse, you'll see differences in wording. The same was true if you look at the way the Greek translation worded things versus other options for how you might have translated the Hebrew. Um, And so a little side note, because of these minor differences uh, and the fact that the New Testament authors quoted the Septuagint as opposed to the Hebrew, um, I think that gives us some assurance that Uh, a translation of the original language of the Bible is still the authoritative word of God. There are groups of people that will claim only the original language is the true word of God. Anything, not even the King James, but the same principle applies. So um, the fact that Jesus and others quoted from the Septuagint, I think gives us some assurance that we are okay reading our English Bibles we don't all need to learn Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. So, um, Unlike the New Testament, which we looked at uh, a little bit with Bob last week, we don't really know what the conditions 
uh, or criteria were for a book to be considered for canonization. Uh, not that they used the word canon when the Hebrews were, um, or the, the, sorry, the Sophrum scribes were recording their scriptures, but um, obviously they had a list of which books, and those are the ones that continue today, and we don't know what their criteria were. Um, we do have some, some ideas. For example, there's a lot of prophecy. Obviously, a prophet can't be wrong. If you made a prophecy and it was wrong, um, he was a false prophet and his, his words have no business being the word of God. Um, what we do know is that God is sovereign over his word, uh, and so he made sure that the correct books were preserved. Um, and we as the church, uh, especially as Protestants, we tend to default to the authority of the Jews in uh, recognizing the inspired word of God to them. So we don't have our own criteria other than to say the Old Testament is what the Jews claim was the word of God, so we will honor that and continue to hold that those are the word of God. Um, and that came up especially in the discussion over the Apocrypha, uh, the Apocryphal books um, in the 16th century with the debates there with the Catholics because the Jews recognize those as historical but don't call them scripture. Um, so that's the Old Testament. Um, in a summary, we as the church hold to what the Jews claim is the Old Testament. Uh, not that they call it that, but those are the scriptures. Um, the New Testament, on the other hand, um, fell primarily to the church to discern and to recognize which writings uh, belonged in the New Testament. Um, as we looked at with Bob, um, all of these had to come from apostles uh, or associates who were inspired by, um, sorry, to be the inspired word of God. This task of recognizing the word of God um, became especially urgent in the early church period as the writings of the leaders were distorted, corrupted, discarded, and even in some cases forged. Um, people would write letters claiming to be Paul uh, and saying things, but it wasn't from Paul. That was a very common one. Uh, especially prevalent in the early church period were the teachings of the Gnostics. We've talked about them. The Gnostics claimed... Uh, Gnostic means knowledge. The Gnostics claimed to have special knowledge, secret revelation from God, above and beyond the writings that were being circulated that had come from Paul and other apostles. Uh, in order to combat this heresy, uh, the church realized they needed to establish clear guidelines for recognizing what, what word came from God and what word was just man or even Satan trying to sow uh, problems in the church. Uh, and so Bob went over these, but uh, here are the guidelines that the church came up with for books. Uh, first, only books that had been either directly authored by an apostle or by someone overseen by an apostle, uh, such as Mark or Luke, could be regarded as scripture. Uh, second, all books must agree with commonly held, or orthodox is the word for it, doctrine, uh, as passed down orally through the apostles' preaching ministry. Uh, much of what was being taught was taught through sermons 
given orally and passed on, uh, and so the writing had to agree with what had been passed down from the apostles in that way. Uh, and third, a book must be broadly accepted by the universal church. So although Paul may have written a letter to one of the other cities in, in Turkey, in fact, he references some of them, if we don't have that letter, it, it was maybe only applicable to them, other churches broadly didn't recognize it for them, so it wouldn't have been considered uh, to be the word of God. Um, as these rules got applied and we started to specify which books belonged and what didn't, uh, this collection started to become known as the New Testament. And then the Hebrew scriptures we began to call the Old Testament in order to distinguish the two apart. Uh, some of the more controversial books that uh, didn't initially make the list uh, from the whole church were Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Jude, Second and Third John, and Revelation. Basically the last portion of our New Testament for the most part. Uh, and some of my favorite books to read. Uh, it took actually some time for all the books as we know them to be accepted. Um, again, some of this is review. Bob talked about this, but we saw, uh, for example, Paul acknowledged the authority of Luke's gospel. So that's one way that we know, okay, an associate of an apostle, something they write, someone who's overseen, their stuff can be acceptable. Uh, Peter acknowledged the authority of Paul's letters as being scripture. Um, moving more into some of the historical figures, um, there was Clement of Rome. He was a bishop there in the, in the late first century, AD 90 approximately. Uh, in some of his writings that we have, he mentions nine of the New Testament books. Only nine of them, but, but he affirms nine of those books. Uh, Polycarp, if you remember him, he was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. Um, he acknowledged about 15 books in a, a letter that we have dating from AD 108. Uh, another bishop, Ignatius of Antioch, mentions only seven books in AD 115. Uh, a man named Irenaeus mentions all of the New Testament books except Hebrew, Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, and Jude uh, in his writings in AD 185. So, you know, move forward about 70, 60 years there. And we've got almost all of them being recognized at that point. Uh, another scholar uh, in this time period, a man named Hippolytus, who lived from AD 170 to 235, recognized 22 of the current list of 29. Um, we've already talked about the word canon. Well, the first known use of the word canon in reference to the accepted New Testament books uh, was a doc document known as the Muratorian Canon, uh, which scholars date to being sometime in the late 2nd century, so around 180-190 AD. Uh, and it also lists 22 of the 27 books. It doesn't include Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, or Third John. And you've been keeping track of these lists I'm mentioning, they're never the same. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Revelation's in there, sometimes it's not, sometimes First John, First Peter. It's kind of all over the place with these lists. Uh, so jump forward a couple centuries here. In AD 353, 
uh, a, a church council known as the Council of Laodicea uh, declared, again, they're dealing with some heresy, with some things going on in the church. So they declared that only scripture should be read in the churches. We don't need to be reading anything that isn't the word of God or preaching from it. Um, so we're not going to get up here and preach out of the purpose-driven life on a Sunday or something. Thank you. Especially. Thank you, Lord. But that, that idea really got... purpose-driven church. Yes. Came into being uh, at the Council of Laodicea in 353. And along with this, they, they gave a list. Okay, and these are the scripture. These are the books that are okay. They listed the entire Old Testament plus one apocryphal book. And it listed the New Testament except for Revelation. So almost had the complete list that we have today. Uh, the oldest recorded list that we have, uh, at least for the New Testament, of, of the 27 books we have today uh, came from AD 367, so 14 years later. Uh, it was written in a letter titled the 39th Festal Letter of Athanasius. Uh, he was the Bishop of Alexandria, which was one of the major churches in the early period uh, located in Alexandria, Egypt. By this point, I don't remember if we got to this point in history, I think we did, um, but the church had split into the east and west already, was starting to have that division. Um, obviously, Egypt, Alexandria was part of the eastern church at that point, uh, and so the eastern church um, accepted this list as the closed canon uh, that same year in AD 367. Uh, there was another council in the east, the Council of Hippo, uh, which is also in Egypt and is where uh, Augustine was born, if you were, or Augustine. Um, there was a council in 393 uh, that affirmed the same list, brought it up and said, yeah, the, the 27 that we have today, yep, that's the right 27. Um, but the Western Church didn't formally accept this list until uh, a meeting in Carthage in 397. So, um, what's that? Four more years after the Council of Hippo, the Western Church had their meeting called the Synod of Carthage and also acknowledged the same list of the 27 books we have today. This list held true for most of church history then from that point on, uh, really until the Roman Catholic Church uh, decided to add the apocryphal books to the Old Testament, uh, which they officially did at the Council of Trent in A.D. 1546, so almost 1,200 years later. Uh, and suddenly the church decided that they needed some new writings to add some more money to their coffers <clears throat> so that they had support for things like purgatory and that sort of thing, because we find, or the, the Catholics find that support in the apocryphal books. Um, and Bob talked about those. I don't really want to go into them too much. They are, yes? I just have a question. I didn't catch when did Revelation become accepted. It, it was in some of the early lists and, and not so much in others. The The full 27 books, including Revelation, was um, in Athanasius' letter in 367. Yeah. It was in, I mean, 8185, Arrhenius included it in his book, or his list, but he didn't include Second Peter or Jude or some of those, so. 
Yeah, it kind of bounced well, around. One item to remember, too, back then, when they, when they received the book, they just you know, slap it on the Xerox machine and start cranking out copies yeah. you know, or, or email. These things were hand-copied, hand-delivered. You know, I think a reason why a lot of the early, early writers didn't include them in their commentaries isn't because they were rejected against it. They might not even have had a copy. Yep. Right. Exactly. You know, so they... So, had nothing to comment on. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a lot of the reason mm -hmm. those, those early lists are short, because they, they just didn't have that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. We have so many copies of the Bible, we don't we we forget that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Or we don't recognize yeah. it. <laughs> doesn't come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. There's no excuse for us in this generation not knowing what we're Yeah, that's for sure. is not necessarily a negation. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. We have to remember that it's not available. Not a rejection, just yeah. not a exactly. knowing about it. Exactly. Right. And just because one person had a list that wasn't, that didn't mean the whole church had assembled and said, yes, this is, yeah. uh -huh. this is it. Uh -huh. so. and, and these guys, and these men that he was quoting are, these are stand-up guys. Mm -hmm. They're not going to just, just because some other guy, even yeah. though they like them, they're not going to just automatically jump and agree without reading it themselves. Yeah. That means they were... Serious people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So the apocryphal books, we, we saw they are historically accurate, um, but they lack many of the uh, compelling reasons to accept them as the word of God, which uh, are typically applied to the Old Testament. Uh, for example, none of the authors of the apocryphal books were recognized prophets. Um, call it the silent period for a reason. After Malachi, there were no recognized prophets until John the Baptist. Um, I already mentioned this, but they weren't included in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, none of them even contain fulfilled prophecy because there were no prophets writing them. You can't be prophecy without a prophet. Um, none of them are quoted authoritatively by New Testament authors. Uh, and in particular, Jesus never once quoted from any apocryphal book. Uh, in any way. Uh, so we don't hold to those. We don't consider those to be the word of God. So as you can see, this process of reaching the list we have today didn't, didn't just happen in an instant. It happened over a period of time. In fact, uh, not until almost 400 years after the formation of the church did we really have the final list. Um, but thankfully, we, we know we can trust this list because we believe in the sovereignty of God. We know that he cares about his word. We saw that with some of those verses in the beginning. Uh, and that God will pay attention and did pay attention to preserving his word exactly as he wanted it to remain. So we know that we didn't lose any books that mattered. And we know that nothing slipped in that shouldn't have. Because it's God. He's not going to let that happen. Uh, Jesus said it quite well, um, actually in many places, so I wasn't even going to pick a reference, but he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Um, you guys have any questions? Prevail against the church. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I like stories, so I saved this for the end if we had time. Oh, you got a question. I'll get back to my story. <laughs> I mean, it would be better than his story. 
I was I was just curious <coughs> where some of those apocryphal books that got ousted uh, came from, like maybe what some of them were called or who they're called. Yes, but. <laughs> Uh, it's not even that they're from Satan, most of them, <laughs> some of them, but a lot of them were just historical books. They were, they were no different than um, any other record of history recording what happened, uh, and Bob talked about this, but the, that 400-year period um, is when we saw the fulfillment of the <coughs> archetype of the Antichrist, is that what you called him? Oh, Antiochus, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, yeah. The stuff that Daniel prophesied about happened in those 400 years. And a lot of the writings, I think in the books of the Maccabees especially, talk about what happened with him and the rebellion of Maccabee, uh, Ju- Some of those Judas. Books like the Maccabee books, for example. They've got a lot of value as history books. Like, like Josephus has value as a historical writer, but not, no real value as far as theology or things like that. Yeah. So an account of things, but not the Word of God. But not the Word of yeah, God. It's, right. it's, it's, it's a valuable book for its historical info, and it gives us it gives us good insight as to the Jewish mindset of that time, like any other history book could do. But that's it. Uh, it, it has value. Uh, it's just not it's authoritative. Just not, it's, not, it's just not scripture. Right. And sure, there's no equal scripture at all. There's some passages in there that talk about paying for your pride, and there's and they get uh, support for indulgences in some of those books in the Maccabees, too, where you buy your way out of purgatory into heaven. So that whole concept, uh, yeah, that would be. And, and they, that's the and two, what was it, fourteen something? They picked it up. You had it there that the Catholic Church adopted fifteen forty six, the Council of Trent. Yeah. That they. That was they called that the that period was the anti Reformation. You got you had Luther and the boys over here saying, "Hey, his ninety four indulgence was tacked on the wall at fifteen eleven. Yes. And so he's been out there running around, and the, the pre Reformers are out there running around too, yeah. Tyndall and all those guys. And Docs, so, yeah, all those guys. <clears throat> so they adopted that to counter the Reformation. Some of these doctrines they've been believing, and then because like you said, that's a great source of revenue. <laughs> Peter's Basilica was, was built on money from indulgences. You can even go so far as that it wasn't that you that actually could pay for the indulgences or the, the purgatory. <clears throat> Your family member could. Right. So the implication there is that it goes not just to the individual, it can go into family wealth, it can go into Roman church got yeah. rich. In fact, it's really no better than the Mormons saying so you can get baptized with the dead. It's a Ponzi scheme. Exactly. Makes you wonder why Jesus died if we could just pay our way in. Right? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's the point of the cross? Yeah. That, when I talk to the Mormon missionaries and they say, you know, I do my best and Jesus does the rest, that's their new oh, catchphrase. And I ask them, I said, well, what's the point of the cross? Well, you still have to pay for our sins. Yeah, but you're adding to what he did. There's so many different places that says not to do that. Not just, you know, it doesn't talk about it. It actually says don't do that. Yeah. Um, and, of course, they're reading, you know, doctrines and covenants and, you know, all of those different things. Back to the 
the Apocrypha. You know, that's just something that you're adding to it. And you, you see that there's there's no relationship there. There's no there's been no regeneration. It's just about what I can do. And you know, I bring that up, but it's still gonna fall on a deaf ear. Yeah. Those eyes have not been opened yet. And that's unfortunate. Oh, what scares me is, you know, what Ross says, I still what a billion people believe in the Roman Catholic uh, teachings. For us, it's so clear. Like you just pointed out, this cross tail is not tail. Scary. It's a radical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. When you're blind, you're blind. Exactly. You know, when those when you, when your heart has been regenerated because God is the one that has opened your eyes, you see those lies for what they are. Yeah. And you, we give we give God glory in the fact that we depend upon him even more yeah. because we realize that it's us. nothing that we did yeah. to uh, receive that in the first place. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. And it's for that reason that we reject the apocryphal books, among other reasons. <laughs> they clearly don't agree with accepted doctrine from the rest of scripture. I still got time for the story. <laughs> Good question. It is a short story. Um, so there wasn't one that, you know, there wasn't like a prophet in New York or something? That, oh, here we go. <laughs> it came out of a Please start your story. You had a question, Carrie? Uh, weren't, was, wasn't everybody excited about the Dead Sea Scrolls being discovered and then that, that they could add to the books, but it turned out to verify right. what we have? Yeah, nothing yeah. was added by the Dead Sea Scrolls. It just awesome. confirmed. Yeah. Oh. Story. Story. Okay. Uh, the applicability of this story, so one of the points was that none of the apocryphal books contain fulfilled prophecy, whereas we see that with the Old Testament. So this is a story of uh, an unusual fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. Um, going back to Alexander the Great, I talked about him. When he was headed down through the Middle East on his way to go fight Egypt... Um, he came across an unusual situation in which uh, there was very little resistance for him. The Babylonians had wiped out any kind of power in this area. But there was a tower on an island off, just off the coast uh, with a group of people holed up in that tower, and he couldn't get to them. And that bothered him because he wanted to conquer everything in his path. He didn't have his ships with him. He didn't want to pause his whole army just to wait out you know, a starvation siege on this little tower because he was trying to get to Egypt. So we came up with a plan to get to this tower. He had his army start grabbing these rocks and boulders nearby and throw them into the ocean and built a bridge out to this island so that he could conquer this little tower on his way down. And that fulfilled prophecy. Ezekiel, let's turn there. Ezekiel chapter 26. Chapter 26. Verse 12. Uh, this chapter, Ezekiel is pre proclaiming uh, judgment against the city of Tyre. 
Uh, and in verse 12 it says, Also, they will make a spoil of your wealth and a plunder of your merchandise, pull down your walls, tear down your desirable houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. Why would anybody throw a city into the water? Well, guess what Alexander threw into the water? The ruins of Tyre. Fulfilling this prophecy. So, that's my fun story. History is fun. All right, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've uh, given us so many copies that we forget how special it is sometimes. Thank you that you've preserved it through the ages exactly as you intend it. Thank you that your word is sufficient for everything we need in this life, that it uh, reveals you to us, that we can know you, that we can know our need for salvation and how you've provided for that need. We praise you for your son, Jesus, for uh, his death on the cross to atone for our sins, and uh, for the faith that you've granted us in him ask that you would be honored, that your word would be proclaimed faithfully by all of us proclaimed in the service today, uh, and that you would continue to build your church, uh, and that you would return soon, Lord. ask all this in your name. Amen.